Welcome to our Bible study here at the Monroe Church of Christ. I'm Derek Glover, the preacher here in Monroe, and we welcome you to this uh, study that we are continuing on the Gospel of John. To look at the Gospel of John is to look at something that is very different from the other stories of Jesus. As we've talked about, uh, the Gospel of John was written quite a bit later than the other three Gospels that we have in our Bible. It also uh, tells the story from a different perspective. Uh, the stories of Jesus were well known and had been passed from person to person, place to place, church to church for some time. And it had begun that there were stories that were written down, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they were all being, and there were others, by the way, others who had written such, but it was those three that were deemed to be uh, the most appropriate to include in our canon or our collection of writings, known as the Bible. But John wrote something a little bit different. John wrote from the perspective of who Jesus was, not simply what he did. And this was, uh, this was different, but he wanted to emphasize something, because as time goes on, um, we began to see our stories differently. Those who witnessed Christ and who were present perhaps had become convicted in the fact that he was the Son of God. But that wasn't the case for everyone, and as time went on, and especially as you had Christians and Jews who, who lived together and who worked together and even worshipped together, there began to arise the question of who Jesus was, if he really was, in fact, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Christ. And so John took it upon himself to write uh, on that basis, and he emphasizes it as the theme of this book, that Jesus was the Son of God. And, and so he focuses a lot on the words of Christ himself, on the testimony of Jesus Christ as to who he was. And we see that even in the stories he tells about Jesus being brought to the surface, that he was the Son of God, that he was divine. And now we enter into the final few chapters of John, and we've seen the trial begin of Christ. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about Jesus before the high priest. We talked about Jesus uh, and, and Peter being there nearby, denying his, his, being a part of his group or, or knowing who he was. Peter denied his association with Christ. And now we see Jesus brought before another individual as a part of his trial. So, and again, in the, in the Gospels, we see these stories different and in different orders. But they took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, in verse 24 of chapter 18. And now, this is after Peter has denied him and the rooster has crowed, so we're reaching the, the morning time. Jesus is then led from there to face Pilate. Pilate's an interesting person. So let's look at verse 28 of chapter 18 in the Gospel of John. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium. And it was early, and they themselves did not enter into the praetorium so that they would not be defiled but might eat the Passover. Uh, the, their, their, the customs of Passover, and this is during the Passover time, that the Jewish people didn't go in there because they would be defiled. They would be ceremonial uncle, ceremonially unclean at that point for entering that part of this, uh, of this structure. So they waited outside, and... Um, they wanted to eat the Passover. So verse 29, therefore Pilate went out to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, if this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. 
now, that's an interesting response. They don't give a real answer to the question. The question is, what's the charge? And essentially the answer is, well, he's here, isn't he? So it must be that we have reason to bring him to you. Now, when, if you were ever brought before a, a judge or a court, uh, part of your right as an American is to uh, be charged, to have your crime stated, to know what you're being charged with, to face your accuser. See, we have certain rights in our laws and in our judicial system that allow us to uh, lean toward preserving the rights even of those accused. That's not the case here. Uh, essentially, their charge is, we brought him to you, so you judge him. We've said there's something wrong. You don't need to know the details, but we want you to, to judge him. Now, why did the judicial structure of the Jewish people uh, make the decision that he would go before Pilate, that, that Pilate would be the one to judge him? Well, we have a bit of a power struggle here, and we have to understand the politics of the time and of the place. Rome is the ruling power in the world and the ruling power in this region. Rome controls, as the ultimate authority, this area. But the Jews in Jerusalem and in this region of Judea, they have some autonomy, uh, at least in, in, in practice, uh, in, if not in, in truth. And that is because it was greatly valued that peace be achieved. So as Rome conquered different regions, different territories, different nations, there was this uh, sense that if peace could prevail, then the power of Rome could be preserved. And part of the strategy for peace prevailing was to allow these other nations to have a degree of autonomy in their operation with Rome waiting there should they step out of line to put them back in line. So there were governors who oversaw these portions and these properties and these territories. So here we have a man named Pontius Pilate who's in this region, he's the governor. Now, he works for Rome, but he lives amongst these people. So you see there's this balance of power and this balance of equities as to whom he serves. He clearly is an officer of Rome, but he has to live amongst these people. And most importantly, his entire job is preserving peace. If there's an uprising, if there's an insurrection, if there's any kind of trouble in this region, he's on the hook for it. And that's not going to go well for him when it comes to his boss and, and how that's viewed. So that's kind of Pilate's motivation here, is he doesn't want to get involved in some local matter, some local dispute. He doesn't want to get involved in it, but he, if his hand is forced, he doesn't want to make a decision that brings about unrest. Rome doesn't care about this mess. They don't care about these people and their religion and the, the, the arguments over their faith, and he just wants this to go away. But they bring him to Pilate. And why do they bring him to Pilate? Well, the Jews also are having to play some politics. They're also having to be mindful of the people. Remember earlier as the Pharisees got together and the rulers got together, they talked about this fact that the people like this guy. We can't just get rid of him uh, in, in, because we fear the people. We can't just silence him. We can't punish. We're going to have to get rid of him a different way. And so they're looking for Pilate to do the dirty work and to say that this is, this is okay because if Pilate says it, then they're off the hook. 
So you have groups of people here now that have an interest in seeing Jesus go away, but for different reasons. And they each want the other one to be the one to do it. So listen to how Pilate responds when they answer and tell him, hey, we, we wouldn't have brought him to you if we didn't have a problem with him. So Pilate says to them in verse 31, take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jews said to him, we are not permitted to put anyone to death. Now, that's true, that they had some limits on their power. Uh, there, there were different rules about who was considered a Roman citizen and who was a part of, uh, who had the protections of the rights of Roman citizens. That was an issue with Paul at a certain point. Uh, if you read his letters, read Acts, you see that come to bear. So here, the, the Pharisees, the teachers say, hey, you know, we can't put him to death. We've got the death penalty on the table here. We need your permission to do that. You have to be the one to declare that he has to die, that he has to be, be put away in this, in this way. So verse 32 says, this is to fulfill the word of Jesus, which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. Because the crucifixion, the act of crucifying, was a distinctly Roman style of death. Um, the, the Jewish people often use stoning as their method. Uh, but to crucify someone on a cross was distinctly Roman. And it was designed to be disgusting and painful and brutal and shameful. You hung there sometimes for days until, until you died. And you were there as an example. It wasn't just to kill you. It was to be an example. Rome, when they would take over a territory, used to go in and select uh, the 10th person. They would number the people, and every 10th person was sentenced to death. Um, no questions asked. And they were crucified, and the streets to that, that town would be lined with those who were being put to death. And the, the cries and the screams and the smells would have been absolutely dominating the landscape. Uh, this practice of counting off every tenth person to be crucified is where we get the word decimate. Deca, meaning one-tenth, decimate. When we say something is decimated, what we're using there is a word that was once in, in, um, in usage to refer to the practice of murdering a tenth of the population in order to subdue a territory. That was the practice of Rome. Uh, much as we talk about their links to modern democracy and, and the advancements that were made uh, in how human beings govern themselves, uh, they were a pretty brutal group, and they would use force to subdue people. So the Jews are clearly signaling here that they would like this person put to death, but they can't be the ones to do it. And so they give him to Pilate. And all this, John mentions here, was to fulfill what Jesus had already said. And it's important that he points that out because this, this book, this story of Jesus is purposed in who he was and that the things he said were going to come to pass and the things he said and who he said he was, all of that was true. And John proves that in the text as he tells the story and as one who was an eyewitness. So, verse 33, Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? Now that's an interesting question. I would have the same one after reading the way this is written because Pilate seems to not know who this is or why he's there because he asks, you know, why don't you do it yourself? I don't want to get involved in this local matter. And um, 
And here Jesus says, you know, did you figure that out or did someone tell you that? Pilate answered, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation, the chief priest, delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. So again, Jesus confirming and reaffirming who he is, that his kingdom is beyond this realm. And that's important because in, as Christianity developed and as time goes on, you know, it's, it's different for us because we have a written word. We have this text that, that we consider to be the story that we believe to be the story. And it's definitive because it's printed and it's published. Uh, and we, don't, we haven't changed a whole lot of it in a long time. But in the time that John's writing this, rumors began to surface and stories began to be circulated that look upon the story of Jesus differently. And uh, some of them saw Jesus as some sort of you know, social change um, agent, as someone who was going to bring about a revolution. People of the time saw it that way too. But as time goes on, the questions of Jesus' divinity began to come up. And they still do even to this day. We defend it now thousands of years later by looking to the scripture and looking to the history, which we believe confirms that. Uh, at the time, John sought to solidify an answer to that in his writing. And so this conversation is very important between Jesus and Pilate. A conversation in which Pilate asks, well, are you who you say you are? Are you who they say you are? And Jesus says, you know, I'm not a king the way you understand kings. I'm not here to do what human beings understand someone like me is here to do. Because if that were the case, then I would have people out there fighting for me. They would be drawing swords, uh, as Peter did earlier that, that night. They would be fighting in a physical way on my behalf, but that's not what I'm here to do. Therefore, Pilate said to him, verse 37, so you are a king, because as Jesus answers, he, he refers to a kingdom, but it's not earthly. And Pilate, hearing this, says, oh, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Some cryptic language here but in this conversation between Pilate and Jesus. And Pilate being kind of a, a disinterested party, this would be interesting to him. He's hearing some strange things. He is being kind of forced to deal and intervene in a local matter, and he doesn't really want to do it. And so he's asking these questions, and Jesus' cryptic answers in the Greek way of reasoning, and, and, and Greece had had a major influence on the way in which people learned and reasoned and spoke. The, the, the modern concepts of rhetoric and debate um, come from Greece and from the philosophies uh, of the great Greek philosophers. And so Pilate is engaging in this kind of conversation. It's a very Greek conversation that he's having. Um, and we see that also in Paul's writings and later in the New Testament, uh, that influence amongst the educated and so Pilate's asking him factual questions, fact-based questions, to determine his guilt or innocence, and Jesus answers them, but not with direct yes or no. Yeah, I'm a king, and I have a kingdom, but it's not of this world. Now, Jesus doesn't deny outright, even though the way Pilate's asking the question isn't entirely precise. 
but he continues to testify to his deity. He continues to testify because his time has come. He is now set to accomplish what he came to accomplish. He has no interest in pleading his innocence and escaping death because his kingdom is not of this world. His life on this earth doesn't have value in continuing. He's done what he set out to accomplish. The value of Christ now lies in his soon-to-be death. And so he answers truthfully, and he answers in a very powerful way. Those who are of the truth hear my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? Now that's a very Greek philosophical question. What is truth? This reflects the, some of the predominant philosophies of the time, even reflects some of our time. Boy, isn't, it, isn't that uh, just a, a, an important question for 2020 and 2021 and the time that we've just experienced? Because how often do we hear something on the news or read something on the internet, and then you can easily find something that completely contradicts it? We have kind of wrestled with that conversation and that idea. Uh, the term that I think has probably been most popular in the last couple of years is misinformation or disinformation, which I find interesting. Disinformation would, would by, the, by the etymology of that word, would indicate that we are actually undoing information. So when you accuse someone of spreading disinformation, you're actually creating ignorance in other people, which I don't know how that works. Misinformation, that would be a pretty accurate term, that sometimes we find things that are stated as fact that may not be factually true. This happens all along the political spectrum, the socioeconomic spectrum, and it's the result of the fact that everyone has an amplified voice because of our ability to communicate through social media and through, uh, through connected devices and, and just the way that our world communicates now. And this question arises of, well, what's true? And it begins to break down the very concept of objective truth. There is something that is factual. And more and more as the days go on, there's less and less that we find ourselves agreeing with because we heard from one source one thing and another source another thing. It's not even a question of who do we trust sometimes. It's a question of what's actually true. Is there such a thing as truth? Or are we screaming into echo chambers our version of the truth? and allowing that to reverberate amongst the people that agree with us. This is a risk even in the church, even in Christianity. There are differences of opinions, there's differences of approach, there's differences in belief about what this Bible is telling us. And it's very easy, rather than having a discussion and finding truth through an examination of the scriptures and through an examination of Christ's words, it's very easy for us to scream out into an echo chamber of people that already agree with us our version of the truth and hear back that, yes, we agree, and we continue down that path. It's a path of isolation. It's a path of exclusion. And it's a path that will lead to the destruction of church if we are not careful. Answering this question, what is truth, we have to remember the words of Christ himself. Because Jesus says what? I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Jesus is truth. That's an interesting question Pilate asks when Jesus has answered it sometime earlier in his life as we read. So Pilate asks this question, and it doesn't get much of an answer. It's almost a throwaway statement. What is truth? 
What is truth? In the, in the very famous uh, work of literature, Atlas Shrugged, Ayn Rand uh, has a phrase that she uses in that book, and, and the phrase is, who is John Galt? Because in this dystopian future that she paints, uh, which as, a, as someone who was a, a writer very much of the libertarian persuasion, Rand writes a lot about the government overreach and the involvement in other people's lives and the lack of personal autonomy. This phrase, who is John Galt, is essentially meant to mean, who cares? It is the question that uh, is, is a common phrase in her novel that refers to this kind of pointlessness of asking questions. Uh, well, who is John Galt? Who is John Galt? People say this over and over in that novel, uh, and, and it's just a commonly accepted phrase in that world she's created to say, what does anything mean? Who cares? Why ask questions that have no answer? Pilate is kind of asking, who is John Galt? Who is the truth? What does it matter? What does it matter? Because in their philosophical world that they lived in, that was a real question. Ascertaining truth is a relatively new concept. Reality was the stories you had in the world you lived in. But as more modern philosophical thought is brought into the culture, the question of ascertaining objective truth becomes more relevant. And Pilate, in looking at Jesus, asks this question to which no answer is given, but to which we have an answer. In a world that is confusing, in a world that seems to spin around with misinformation and disinformation and argument and opinion and echo chambers and shouting, we ask that question too. What, what, what even is truth anymore? What does it mean to have the truth? Jesus states that he is the truth and that those who are in him are in the truth and those who are interested in truth seek him and hear his voice because there is nothing about this world that remains stable. Nothing about our cultures and the societies we build and the government structures that we, that we make, nothing about it is stable, nothing lasts forever. What is enduring? What is truth? Jesus is truth. Our Savior is the only thing that remains true despite anything in this world that changes. Pilate asks this question as a throwaway, hopeless, rhetorical question. But we see it as something much deeper because we know the answer. The answer is Jesus Christ. So Pilate seems satisfied here. When he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him. I don't find any reason to put him to death. I don't find it. I mean, what he's not, in Jesus' state, he's not trying to start an insurrection. So Rome's okay. He's not trying to do anything other than to, uh, to bring about his teachings, his kingdom, and, and as far as Pilate's concerned, none of that matters. So, because uh, he doesn't understand it. So he doesn't see anything about Jesus as threatening or dangerous. Well, because he's not one of the teachers of the law whom Jesus is challenging with his ministry. See, he's challenging a power structure. We're hard on the Pharisees sometimes. We're hard on these teachers. 
We look at them and go, how could they have missed it? They have all the prophecy, all the law, everything points to Jesus. And here he is. And he's saying exactly what they knew he was going to say. The problem is, and if you understand the history a little bit, things develop and things evolve. New rules are written. New laws are written. New interpretations of laws are put forth amongst the Jews. And when you develop a power structure of elitism, when you have a society that is based on a select few who disseminate the will of God to the rest of the people, there is a power structure that develops. There is an elitist class that develops. And the religious elite, who also happened to be the essentially the government elite because they controlled all aspects of life. Well, they feel threatened when that power is threatened and they respond accordingly. They were blinded by their fear of what it would change in their life to accept Christ. You ever felt that way? I have. We reject Jesus and his teaching because we're afraid of what it will bring about in our life. We're afraid of the change of course they believed in God, and of course they wanted to serve God. We kind of look at them as just these bad guys, these evil people who just were selfishly about their own gain. And, and yes, that, that happened because power has a corrupting element to it. And it had become corrupt, and it had become intertwined with the politics of the region. And, and these people saw Jesus as just another in a long line of crazy people making crazy claims and stirring up the citizenry. They didn't see the truth in him because their eyes were blinded by the corruption and power that their structure had given them. That's what we do. Think about our country. Think about our Constitution, our Bill of Rights. Think about the things that our founders put into that to protect life that they had, had conceived of in this land. Think about what we left. We rebelled against a government as colonies because they wanted to tax us without asking our permission. Uh, have you been to the grocery store lately? I'll bet the tax that you paid if you bought tea was a lot higher than the tax that Britain was charging for our tea in the late 1700s. We didn't want a monarch. We didn't want a ruling class that lived by different sets of rules. Have you seen the health insurance that people in Congress get? Have you heard of something called diplomatic immunity? Have you ever uh, heard the stories of uh, members of Congress or governors or people in, in certain elected office being let out of speeding tickets because of who they are? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know that we've really strayed too far from that monarch kind of model. We definitely have a ruling class. We definitely have become some of the things we tried to get away from. Why? Is it because our Constitution is bad and this experiment has failed? No, it's because that's the nature and the historical trend of people and governments and power. Despite every good intention, Despite, and despite the good intentions of our elected officials. It just corrupts us. It blinds us. It changes our vision. changes our perspective. 
the people in power in Jesus' day had had their vision altered. I believe that they probably were trying to serve God, and they honestly believed that what they were doing was exactly what God wanted them to do. Look at Paul. We know that Paul had a good heart, and he loved people, and he becomes this compassionate, caring person when we read the epistles, especially as he gets older. How could he have stood by and watched people get murdered because they believed in Jesus? Because he strongly felt that that was what God wanted him to do. Sometimes we hear these firebrand preachers railing on about one church or another or one preacher or another who's gotten it wrong and they got it right and they want to let everybody know. And hey, we're going to differ on certain things that we see in scripture, but that person who is naming names and throwing stones, are they just a bad person? Or are they just me? No, they genuinely think that's what God wants them to do. They genuinely think they're serving the Lord for the most part. If you want to take a really understanding uh, view of people, you don't want to think the worst of people, and I try not to. But here we have a people corrupted by power corrupted by their authority, corrupted by the very thing that they sought to preserve, the law. And they're seeking the death of someone. And Pilate looks at this as a third party kind of sitting above this whole conflict and says, he's not breaking any law, not breaking any law that I can find, so I don't want to put him to death. So he goes out and he tells them, you know, I don't find any guilt in him. But then he says this, but you have a custom that I release for you at the Passover, that I release someone for you at the Passover. Do you wish to, that I release for you the king of the Jews? So they cried out again saying, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. That's how John describes it. This scene is played out in a little bit different detail in other gospels where Pilate brings out Barabbas and he gives them the choice. Who do you want me to release? And it's interesting, the motivations of Pilate here, and we can't know everything going on in his head, but if he, he could have said, I don't find any reason to, to, to sentence him, to find him guilty, here you go, we're done. But, as is indicated in other Gospels, he was afraid that there could be a disturbance, there could be some unpeaceful things happening, and he needed to protect himself. And so he says, here's an option. I'm not going to find him guilty, but you have this custom. Uh, on Passover, your holiday, as your governor, I give to you this gift by releasing one of the, your people, one of our prisoners. And he sets up Barabbas, who I'm sure he felt seemed like an evil enough person that they wouldn't choose him over this man who is, seems to be causing no trouble. Or Jesus and the people at the insistence of the leaders in the crowd who stirred everyone up cry out release Barabbas release Barabbas and crucify Jesus put him to death amazing the persuasion that went on amongst those leaders the power they wielded and the way that they used this system and the way Pilate gave in to that system. People have different views of Pilate. Was he just a pawn of Rome? Was he a weasel? 
Was he politically expedient or was he someone genuinely seeking truth and maybe someone whose life was touched by his interaction with Christ? Honestly, we don't really know. What we see is someone who's trying to keep his job and keep his life. That's all we can tell. He's trying to get rid of this matter, and I think he, he might have thought he could do so by putting this choice before them. What he, he probably didn't count on was how motivated these teachers and these leaders were to get rid of this problem, this Jesus problem. And why was that different from the other times that someone had come before them claiming to be the Messiah or claiming to be from God? Because that happened. There were other people that claimed to be the chosen one, claimed to be the Messiah, the Christ, and they didn't seem to cause this kind of problem. They didn't seem to cause this kind of stir because Jesus spoke as one with authority. He sounded different. He talked different. He acted different. So Jesus made a big impact. Jesus created quite a stir. He scared these leaders and these teachers. And they would not stop until his life was ended. And Pilate, despite maybe his best efforts or maybe just a cursory effort, was thwarted in sparing his life. And the people are going to get their way. We have a couple of chapters left here. I have a couple, uh, well, I have one more week after this one, and then I'm going to be gone for two Sundays. But we will have uh, the lessons to conclude the Gospel of John pre-recorded, ready to go. So Sunday morning at 10 o'clock, you can find us right here uh, with the next installment of the Jesus stories of the Gospel of John. Our worship service will be uh, happening in uh, about a half an hour, and we hope you'll join us for that uh, at that time.